0: The sermon I am going to read was prepared by Rev. Art van Delden from the Free Reformed Church at Rockingham, Australia. And after this sermon, we'll sing from Psalm 27, verses 1 through 6. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, faith... It is something so important that many have chosen to cling to it, though it caused them great suffering and even death. Some were tortured, others had trials of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, sawn in two, tempted, and slain with a sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented. They wandered in deserts and mountains, and lived in dens and caves of the earth. They could have been delivered from this suffering and death if only they would renounce their faith in Jesus Christ. But they would not. Instead, they clung tenaciously to their faith. Why? Because they knew that their faith was the lifeline that secured them to their Savior, Jesus Christ. For them, there was nothing more important than being bound to Jesus Christ. Can you say the same? Would you be willing to suffer and die for the sake of your faith? Is there anything more important than your bond to Jesus Christ? Knowing how important faith is, we will want to be sure that our faith is genuine. This afternoon, we will learn from the scripture what true faith is, with the intent of answering a very important question. Is my faith a true faith? This question is asked because, number one, there are so many false faiths. Number two, there is only one true faith. And number three, there is salvation only through true faith. I'll repeat that. Number one, is my faith a true faith? Number one, there are so many false faiths. Number two, there is only one true faith. And number three, there is salvation only through true faith. If you heard on the news that there were a lot of counterfeit $100 bills being circulated, you would probably think twice before accepting $100 bills from anyone. You would want to be sure that you had an authentic $100 bill, not a counterfeit. Now, Scripture tells us that there are counterfeit faiths. In his second letter to Timothy, Paul said that there were some men, presumably in the church of Ephesus where Timothy served, who opposed the truth. Men of depraved minds, who, as far as the faith are concerned, are rejected. In the New King James Version, it states, men of corrupt minds disproved concerning their faith. The word disproved is a word that was used in the financial sector. It referred to counterfeit money. The RSV describes these men as having corrupt minds and counterfeit faith. Their faith looked real enough, and only upon close inspection could it be seen as counterfeit. In the end, their faith was all show. They had the form of godliness, but denied its power. They were all talk, all show. It would seem that James had a similar people in mind. He confronted a people who seemed sound enough in doctrine, but whose faith produced no good fruits. It was a faith without works, which James says is a dead faith. So he exhorted his readers, that Be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Christ also spoke of temporary faith. In the parable of the seeds, Christ taught that some seeds which fell among the rocks sprouted, but when the sun arose, they were scorched and died because they had no depth of soil. Christ explained this when he said, The ones on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing they fall away. Christ said they believe for a time, but their faith was superficial. The so-called faith did not penetrate into their hearts, because their hearts were still as hard as stone. True faith, however, is a faith that is deeply embedded in hearts, that the Spirit has changed from hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. When Peter performed miracles in Samaria, a certain magician named Simon was greatly impressed. Scripture says, Then Simon himself also believed, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip, and was amazed seeing the miracles and signs which were done. But sometime later Peter said to Simon, Your money perish with you, because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. This so-called faith might be called miraculous faith, a faith that arises from miracles, not from the contents of the gospel as such, and therefore not a true faith. When Paul was on trial, he stood before King Agrippa. Now, Agrippa knew the Jewish religion well. Paul asked him, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. What kind of faith is this that believes the prophets and yet does not believe in the Christ of whom they prophesied? Theologians have called this historical faith, having a historical knowledge of Scripture, but being untouched by the threat of judgment against sinners contained in Scripture— And unmoved by the promises of redemption in Christ. So, Scripture speaks about counterfeit faith and dead faith and gives some examples of temporary faith, miraculous faith, and historical faith. But none of these faiths are genuine faith. All of these have the appearance of faith, but none of them have the essence of true faith. Now, the fact that there are these false faiths force us to examine our own faith to see whether we have perhaps been deceived into thinking that we truly believe in Christ when, in fact, our faith is not genuine. For not all who say, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of God. So we take up the challenge that Paul extended to the Corinthians. Examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. For in contrast to these, there is only one true faith, which is our second point, Our catechism gives us great assistance as we examine ourselves to see whether our faith is true, for it teaches us what true faith really is. In the first place, we are taught that faith consists of knowledge. To appreciate the catechism's emphasis upon knowledge, we need to understand that it was written in a time when the knowledge of Scripture was regarded as unnecessary for faith. The Church of Rome thought that the ordinary person in the congregation was unable to correctly understand the doctrine of God's word. Only the clergy could. In fact, Rome said it was dangerous for the average church member to have the Bible in his or her own language and in their possession. Rome opposed the translation of the Bible into the language of the people, and Rome punished believers who obtained copies of the Bible for themselves. Coupled with this was the Church of Rome's error that men shared in God's grace through the sacraments, not through faith. All the emphasis was placed on the sacraments and little on the preaching. What little preaching there was in the church service was in Latin, a language not known to the average member in the pew. The result of all this was that prior to the Great Reformation, the members of the church were largely uninstructed in God's word. But that was okay, said the Church of Rome, as long as the people had implicit faith in the teaching of the church. The clergy knew and understood the Bible. All that was required of the ordinary member of the Church, the laity, was that he agreed to the doctrines held by the Church without knowing the content of that doctrine. The Church would do the thinking and believing for the people. The people only had to have faith in the Church. In contrast to the teachings of the Church of Rome, the Reformers stressed that faith requires knowledge. It does not require full and perfect knowledge. Even children with a limited knowledge of Scripture can possess true, true faith. But there must be some knowledge, and as knowledge increases, faith also increases. This does not mean that great knowledge of Scripture brings perfect understanding and comprehension, for even those who are well-versed in Scripture possess only a partial comprehension of all that is revealed in in Scripture, for God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts, and God's ways are higher than our ways. Peter wrote in 2 Peter 3, verse 16, Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures, to their very destruction. Even Paul admitted that, Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. We cannot comprehend the essence of God nor can we understand the Holy Trinity. But we believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We cannot comprehend all things pertaining to God's decree of election and reprobation, but we believe what Scripture teaches about these things. In fact, we could add this to our definition of faith. Faith is the acceptance of things not fully understood. This is why childlike faith is so important, for children will believe things that they do not understand, They believe because mom, dad, or teacher has told them. They believe without fully comprehending. Scripture commands us to possess this childlike faith. Nevertheless, an essential part of faith is true knowledge. But this implicit faith was not true faith. The Reformers stressed that true faith consists first of knowledge of the word of God. You cannot believe in God unless you know God, and God reveals himself in his word. Think of what Paul says in Romans 10, verse 14. And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? Paul goes on to say that, in order to believe, men must have the word of God proclaimed to them. Now, the Catechism says more about true faith. It is not only knowledge of the word of God, it is also a sure acknowledgement that all that God reveals in his word is true. There have always been many who believe some of what God reveals in the Bible. There are also some who believe much of what God reveals in the Bible, but true faith believes all that God has revealed in Holy Scripture. This needs to be stressed in our modern age, where men apply scissors to the Bible, much like a gardener applies his shears to the bushes. They snip off a few chapters here and there, and in the end they are left with a bush with only a few short branches. There are some who deny that the opening chapters of the book of Genesis relate historical facts. They regard it as poetry or as symbolism. There are some who deny the ten plagues in Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea and the manna falling from heaven. There are some who deny that the walls of Jericho came tumbling down. So it goes throughout the Old Testament, and the New Testament fares no better. The virgin birth of Christ is denied, his miracles are denied, his resurrection is denied. In contrast to these false faiths, the one true faith accepts as true all that God has revealed, from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. There is still one other qualification of true faith. True faith is a firm confidence that all the promises in Scripture are trustworthy and true. The true believer possesses personal certainty that he truly shares in what God promises in his word. This personal confidence in the promises of Scripture is a very important aspect of faith. Knowledge of Scripture itself does not constitute the true faith, for the devil knows the Scriptures. Think of how he quoted Scripture when he tested Jesus Christ in the wilderness. He knows that everything contained in the Scriptures is true. He knows that Jesus Christ is the Savior of mankind. That is why he tried so hard to prevent Christ from coming into this world and to to prevent Christ from fulfilling his redeeming work. The devil knows that Christ comes again to judge the living and and the dead. He knows that his time is short. Yes, the devil has sure knowledge of Scripture, but he does not have true faith. True faith consists not only of a sure knowledge, but also a firm confidence in the goodness and grace of God that he promises in his word. The true believer is convinced of his Heavenly Father's providential care over him. He believes that not a hair will fall from his head without his Father's will. He believes that the Father will make all things that happen in his life work together for his good, for his salvation. The true believer is sure of his redemption through Christ. He is certain that his sins are really forgiven him for the sake of Christ's atoning sacrifice. He is convinced that the righteousness of Christ is freely granted him, as if he himself had fulfilled all righteousness. He is persuaded that he is an heir, together with Christ, of glorious, everlasting life. The true believer is certain of the Spirit's instruction, guidance, and preservation. There are some passages in Scripture where the confident knowledge is beautifully expressed by some of the saints. Listen to one of the beautiful expressions of faith from Job, who confessed, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. Job makes a very sure personal confession that his living Savior would raise him from the dead, and in the flesh he would live in the presence of God. The Apostle Paul in the last letter that he wrote prior to his death wrote I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day Paul entrusted his life and soul to God and he was absolutely sure that his life was safe in God's hands rock solid sure think also of that triumphant hymn that Paul sings in his letters to the Romans I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, or any other created thing, shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The saints mentioned in Scripture possessed possessed this confidence. I know, I am persuaded. Scripture often speaks about the assurance of faith. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, For our gospel did not come to you in words only, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance. The author of the letter to the Hebrews wrote, Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, and let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Does this confidence tolerate any doubt, beloved? Is there any uncertainty mixed in our persuasion? Is our assurance full and complete at all times? Let me convey some of that which John Calvin wrote in his Institutes. While we teach that faith ought to be certain and assured, we cannot imagine any certainty that is not tinged with doubt, or any assurance that is not assailed by some anxiety. On the other hand, we say that believers are in perpetual conflict with their own unbelief. Calvin goes on to give some examples from Scripture. In Psalm 42, the psalmist says, I will say to my God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? And in the next psalm, he cries out, Why do you cast me off? In Psalm 31, verse 22, the psalmist writes, For I said in my haste, I am cut off from before your eyes. I continue to quote from Calvin The godly heart feels in itself a division because it is partly imbued with sweetness from its recognition of the divine goodness. Partly grieves in bitterness from an awareness of its calamity. Partly rests upon the promise of the gospel. Partly trembles at the evidence of its own iniquity. Partly rejoices at the expectation of life. Partly shudders at death. This variation arises from imperfection of faith, since in the course of this present life it never goes so well with us that we are wholly cured of the disease of unbelief and entirely filled and possessed by faith. Hence arise those conflicts. But even if we are distracted by various thoughts, we are not, on that account, completely divorced from faith. Nor, if we are troubled on all sides by the agitation of unbelief, are we for that reason immersed in its abyss. If we are struck, we are not for that reason cast down from our position." For the end of the the conflict is always this, that faith ultimately triumphs over those difficulties that besiege and seem to imperil it. Even in its weakest moments, true faith is never completely destroyed by doubt. For the seed of regeneration, which has given birth to faith in our hearts, is an imperishable seed. Now each of us ought to examine our own heart. Do we find this faith living in us? Perhaps we can ask some personal questions concerning our faith. Do I know God? And I mean more than just know something about Him. Over time, a husband and wife get to know each other. Friends who spend time together get to know each other. Do I know God? Do I take the time and put in the effort to become acquainted with Him through the scriptures, which is His self-revelation? Have I come to know the wisdom, the majesty, the power, the goodness, and the mercy of my God? Have I become acquainted with the great works that God has performed and still performs in the creation and government of the world and this universe? Have I become acquainted with God's great works of redemption in Christ Jesus and through the Spirit, the justification and sanctification of sinners? Do I accept as true all that God reveals about Himself, His work, and His will? Do I accept as true all that the Father reveals concerning His providential care over me? Do I accept as true Christ's redemptive work and the Spirit's recreative work? Do I have this childlike trust and comfort in God's fatherly care? Do I have the certainty of my redemption in Christ? Am I assured of the Spirit's guidance and preservation? Do I truly trust my sins are forgiven me only for the sake of Christ's merits? Am I sure that I am acceptable to God and admitted into his kingdom on the basis of the obedience, the righteousness of Christ? <clears throat> Do I have the confidence to appear without terror before the judgment seat of God on the last day? Am I certain that I am an heir to life everlasting? The fact that there are many false faiths and that there is only one true faith prompts us to examine our hearts to see whether our faith is true. It is so important because our salvation depends upon it. This brings us to our third point, there is salvation only through faith. Faith alone binds us to Christ. Faith is like the umbilical cord that joins a baby in the womb to its mother. It is through that umbilical cord that all the necessary nutrients pass from mother to child. All the oxygen that the baby needs comes through the lungs of its mother. Mother breathes, and baby receives the oxygen through the umbilical cord. Mother eats and drinks, and the baby receives all the nutrients that it needs to grow big and strong. It receives these nutrients through that umbilical cord. The baby can't do anything of itself. It can't breathe. It can't eat or drink. It is altogether helpless. It has no life apart from its mother. Through the umbilical cord, the baby shares in all the life-sustaining goodness of its mother. You could say that the baby in the womb shares the mother's life. Without its mother, the baby would die. In the same way, we have no life apart from Christ. We are altogether helpless. We must be connected to Christ. And the umbilical cord that binds us to Christ is faith. Just as the life-sustaining goodness of the mother is transferred to the baby through the umbilical cord, so the life-giving merits of Christ are transferred to us through faith. Christ suffered and died in order to make payment for sin. Through faith, we receive the forgiveness of sins. Christ rendered obedience to the Father throughout his life and so acquired righteousness for us. We share in Christ's obedience, or his righteousness, through faith. Faith. It is something so important that many have chosen to cling to it, though it caused them great suffering and even death. Some were tortured, others had trials of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, sawn in two, tempted, and slain with a sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented. They wandered in deserts and mountains, and lived in dens and caves of the earth. They could have been delivered from this suffering and death, If they would only have renounced their faith in Christ Jesus, but they would not, instead they clung tenaciously to their faith. Why? Because they knew that their faith was the lifeline that secured them to their Savior, Jesus Christ. For them, there was nothing more important than being bound to Jesus Christ. Considering the importance of faith, it is vital that we examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith, beloved, For there is nothing as important as being bound to Jesus Christ. It is a matter of life and death, eternal life and eternal death. Amen.